Hebrews chapter 5, turn to verse 1. We'll read that together now. If you don't mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 5, 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So Christ also did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. We started Hebrews talking about Jesus Christ as the superior messenger. And many of you were here for those messages in the first couple chapters. He's better than the prophets, he's better than the fathers, and he's better than God's most powerful messengers, the angels. He's better than all of them. And then we saw how the superior messenger took an inferior position. And why did he do that? He did that so he could become our high priest, so he could suffer with us, so he could reverse the curse. Then moving into chapters 3 through 4, where we've been for a while now, we saw Jesus as the superior mediator, the superior leader of God's people. He was better than Moses. He was better than Joshua. He offered a better rest than they could offer. He's superior. And now we're moving into a section from chapters 5 through chapter 7 where Jesus is going to be superior to the Levites. He'll be superior to the Levitical priesthood. And by the time you get to the end of Hebrews... We're going to see there's nothing left of the Old Covenant that Jesus is not better than. He, he, he fulfills it all. He beats it all. He's better. He's superior. He is great. We've already seen, said this several times, but as we studied Hebrews, we've learned that every good sermon is going to go back and forth between exhortation and exposition. Exposition, exhortation, going back and forth between one and the other, instructing us and then applying it to our lives. It's going back and forth between those two things. And now when we get back to chapter 5, when we reach chapter 5, we're going to be at a longer extended exposition. So in other words, we have to really tune in and see what the teaching, what the instruction is here for us. You won't see a lot of commands, a lot of exhortations in these first 10 verses in chapter 10. But we have to receive this instruction before we can take on the next points of application that we'll see after these verses. Everything okay? Okay. All right, so what's the teaching of these verses that we just read? We've already had this real strong assertion that Jesus is what? Our great high priest. A great high priest. Now keep in mind what the original readers would have been going through. 
they were people who were tempted to go back where? Back to the safety of the Old Covenant, back to the safety of the law, back to the Moses, back to the Levitical priesthood. And as we go further into Hebrews, we're going to talk about why they wanted to do that. But for now, and listen, this is very important. We're still exploring the fact that going back to the law means going back to something that's obsolete. There may at that point in time in history have been people who were priests and people were dressed up in the priestly garments offering sacrifices. But everything they were doing 30 years after the death of Christ was just ritual, was just a waste of time. So what about the law? Just in case the readers were tempted to think that Jesus bypassed the law, this passage is going to show us that Jesus not only qualifies to be the high priest, but that he is the great and the final high priest. Jesus met every single requirement of the law. He was born under the law, right? And whenever he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say about the law? He said, do you think I came to abolish the law, set it aside, pretend like it's not there? Is that what Jesus came to do? He said, oh, I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill the obligations of the law for his, for his people. So tonight in this passage, we're going to see a contrast and comparison between the Old Testament high priests and Jesus, our great high priest. We're going to see how they're similar, but then how Christ is superior. We're going to see how Jesus does qualify to be the high priest, but that he puts an end to the earthly high priests. We're going to see how Jesus, or the Old, Old Testament high priests were ultimately ineffective, but how Christ was effective. How the old priests were temporary, but how Christ is eternal. And as you see in your papers there, we're going to go from the general to the specific. From the general to the specific. So let's look first in verses 1 through 4, the general. Your blank there is every. High priest, every high priest. We're talking very generally now about what the job of the high priest was. Very basic information about Levitical high priests. So look at, let's look at the job description in verse 1. Read that verse again with us. For, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. Again, very basic information about what the high priest is, what he does. High priests were appointed to represent the people before God. Very simply, that's what their job was. That was the description of their job. And that meant it was essential for them to have a close connection to who? To groups, right? To God, and then who else? To the people. Both. You don't mind, I'll take this jacket off. It's cold outside, but not in here. So let's break this down. They had to maintain a close relationship, one, to God. This is a relationship that had to be maintained. Go and turn to Isaiah chapter 28. We'll look around at a couple of examples in the prophets. This relationship to God, the Levitical priests, they had to maintain this. It's something that could be corrupted, and it's something that was corrupted as you went on into the times of the captivity with Babylon. And the same goes with us. Our relationship with God has something that has to be maintained, something that we have to work on. So look at these Old Testament examples of corruption, though, in the priesthood. Isaiah 28, verse 7. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. Who are these people? The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. You don't turn there, but Jeremiah 23 says very similar things. Jeremiah 23, 11. For both prophet and priest are polluted. 
Even in my house, I have found their wickedness. Who says this? The Lord declares the Lord. In verse 33 of the same chapter, Now when this people or the prophet or a priest asks you, Jeremiah, saying, kind of in a taunting way, in a mocking way, what's the oracle of the Lord anyway, Jeremiah? Then you're going to say to them, what oracle? The Lord declares this about you, prophet and priest. Here's the oracle. Here's the burden of the Lord. I will abandon you. That's what God had to say to those priests. I will get rid of you. The priests and the prophets of those days were confusing their private opinions with God's word. They were saying that the things that where they were saying were coming from God, is, but they were only coming from themselves. Look at Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 10. Ezekiel 44, verse 10. Same idea. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Look at verse 13. And they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy. But they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. The point is this. To effectively serve as a priest, you had to maintain a closeness to God. That was the priest's duty. And secondly, they had to maintain a close relationship to the people. They weren't far off. They were from the people, and they were for the people. You heard that slogan from the law group that says, for the people. And you get a little suspicious of them, right? Like you really think they are for the people or for something else? But these were truly people that were from men and for men. They were from Israel to serve Israel. You had prophet, or these the priests in their priestly garments. Everything they had was, was significant, this breast piece that they wore. You have these four rows of three stones apiece. And what do those stones represent? What do those stones represent? Twelve tribes of Israel, right? And then Exodus 28 has this to say about it. It says, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment. And where were they to be? Over his heart. Over his heart when he enters the holy place. For a memorial before the Lord continually. The people were to be over his heart. They were to be on him. He was there to be representing the people, to standing there in the presence of God for the people. As application of, about this for today, because you hear this in seminary, you hear guys talking back and forth, and they say, well, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And the next guy will say, well, I'm a shepherd. Have you heard that kind of talk before? Uh, can you really choose between one or the other? Does the Bible give us an option to choose between those two, those two things? Say, well, I'm just going to teach the people, or no, I'm just going to not do much teaching and just do some shepherding. Uh, one preacher named Kent Hughes, he was having a conversation with a young pastor, and the young pastor said this. said, the ideal situation for me would just be to live in a big study line full of books and then connected to that study have a tunnel going straight into the pulpit, and I would just have to emerge from the tunnel once a week, and that would be my ministry. And that's the idea that many people have they, that they can choose. The leaders of God's people were never designed to be just to themselves. It's never how it was meant to be. So that's the description. What about the job purpose? Moving down to letter B, the job purpose. Still in verse 1. See how they're described, but what were they supposed to do? What was the purpose of the high priest? Verse 1 has two key words. It says, in order, 
Why were the high priests appointed? In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for what? For sin. What kind of reputation does the church have today? Lots of different things you'll hear, but one is that it's just a place where a lot of good people go and where they exclude all the bad people. You hear things like that? You hear this every time you go evangelizing. Uh, Kenny's been with us when we go evangelizing on campus, and you go to hand someone a tract or go to ask them questions about the gospel, and what do they say? Oh, no, thanks. I'm not religious. Or, no, thanks. You just think that everyone's going to hell. You hear comments like that, right? That's the reputation the church has gained. But from the beginning to the end, the Bible describes God's people as sinners in need of a Savior. God's people have always been people who have been found guilty before God and stand in need of atonement. That's how people, the God's people are described. That's basic to biblical Christianity. So here's a question for you to think about. When it comes to giving the law and the priesthood, did God give the law to Israel? And then they decided to break it. And then God thought, oh, no, I need to figure out a way to take care of their sin. I'm going to set up a priesthood. Is that how God did it? No. Embedded in the Old Covenant is the priesthood and the sacrificial system. It was all part of God's plan from the beginning. He knew that Israel was going to break the Ten Commandments. He made provision for this immediately through the sacrificial system. And this was the priest's primary job, offering up sacrifices for the sins of the people. So that's the job. What about the qualifications? Verses 2 through 4. Two qualifications mentioned in this passage. First one is that the high priest could deal gently with sinful people. Dealing gently with sinful people. Look at verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. The high priests had this all-important job to show sympathy, show sympathy to the people. Now, who was he called to be gentle with? What does the text say? What kind of people was he called to be gentle with? The ignorant and misguided. And there's two things we need to say about this, two things that we don't often think about in relation to this. But number one, the law was so specific and had such high standards, the people were constantly breaking it, and many constantly breaking without even knowing it or without even meaning to. Such a high standard that it was just something you broke without even trying. But there were people who kept on sinning defiantly. And what is Numbers 15? If you've read Numbers 15 lately, what does that have to say about people who sin defiantly, continually against the law? Cut them off. So these sacrifices were for the people who were ignorant and misguided, people who continually broke the law sometimes even without even knowing it. Second thing we need to say about this, being ignorant and misguided at sin, what does it first affect? Does it first affect your actions and what you do? What is, sin, what is the first thing that sin affects? The mind. It affects the mind. When we fall into sin, it's something that's always going to be coming out of cloudy judgment, and it's going to be leading us astray, and it can com will compound from there. It starts in the heart, it starts in the mind, but then as we continue to act on those things that are in our heart, in our mind, our judgment is going to get more and more cloudy. We're going to get further and further led astray. So we're never in our right mind when we're in our sin. So what does it mean for the high priest to deal gently with the people? As he means he just 
was really nice to them, coddled them. What does it mean for him to deal gently with the people? Have you heard of the philosopher named Philo? Curious. A few people. He was a philosopher who lived at the same time as uh, in the first century with Jesus and the apostles. He died in about 50 AD, so he was a little bit older than those guys. Um, but he thought that this concept of apatheia, where we get the word what? Apathy. Indifference. He thought that was the superior virtue. That's what you want to strive for. Just indifferent. You're not shaken by anything. Then there's the word we came across last week, which was sum patheo, which is what? Sympathy, right? Suffering with the people, experiencing what they experience. But the word in this verse that we see here in chapter 5 is metria patheo, which is to moderate your feelings. It gives us a fuller understanding of what the priesthood is. It means to moderate your passions. We're people of extremes, aren't we? We go one way or we go the other. So now put yourself in the counseling room with someone else who's struggling with the sin. Or put yourself in a situation with one of your kids has come to you with a problem. Or maybe they've sinned against you. We're, since we're people of extremes, what do we do? We choose one of the other different tactics, right? We say, okay, well, it's really not that big of a deal if you sin. We just let it go. God doesn't really care. It doesn't really bother me. Let's just let it go. That's one extreme. What's the other extreme? can't believe you did that. There's no hope for you now. You're done. You're cut off. Are those the only two options that we have? The high priest had to moderate his passions in those circumstances. He didn't have the right to get angry about other people's sins and at the same time excuse his own sins. Because he was just a man. Why was this the case? What does the verse say? Why did he have to deal gently with these people? Because he himself also is beset with weakness. It's the reason the text gives us. We should never think too highly of ourselves while we're trying to counsel other people. What we're doing is we have to keep in mind things that we already have done and things that we're fully capable of doing with the sin that was still in our hearts. It's a wonderful thing when you meet someone who can really sympathize with you, moderate their passions while they're dealing with you. It's, it's a wonderful thing when you can talk to someone like that who will listen to you and help point you back to Christ. That's a great thing, isn't it? But can that person be your savior? Were these high priests in the Old Testament ultimately the savior? They were temporary. And why is that? Both the people and the priests, what do they both need? They both needed atonement. They both needed forgiveness. They were both sinners. They were all people who had broken God's law. They were all in the same boat. The priests had to be consecrated. While I'm reading Exodus 19, turn over to Leviticus 4. Exodus 19, 22 says, Also let the priests who come near to the Lord, let them consecrate themselves. Why is it such a big deal? Or else the Lord will break out against them. Leviticus 4, verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, look at verse 3. If the priest, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. It's the priest's job too. Turn over to Leviticus 9, 7. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for whom? Yourself and for the people. 
Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord has commanded. They were all in the same boat. So that's the first qualification for the high priest to deal gently with sinful people. What's the second qualification? Second is that the high priest had to be divinely appointed. Divinely appointed in verse 4. Verse 4 says, No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. Aaron the high priest. You couldn't appoint yourself to this job. You couldn't appoint another high priest to this job. The people didn't vote him in. You couldn't apply for You didn't get an interview for the position. It's something that only God could do. And it's something that only God himself did. If you've ever read the famous passage, Isaiah 6, talks about a king who died that year. Who was that king? Uzziah. King Uzziah. Anyone know what happened in the years before his death? Something he tried to do? What kind of condition he was in the year he died? Leprosy. How did he get leprosy? Anyone recall that? Exactly. Exactly. Second Chronicles 26, you don't have to turn there. But King Uzziah had become strong, he had become powerful, his reign was increasing. And what set in? Humility? Pride. Pride set in his heart. When he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, because, for, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He tried to usurp this office of priest, even though he was the king. God immediately struck him with leprosy. He lived as a leper, cut off from the people until the day he died. This is King Uzziah. Not even the king could appoint himself as the high priest. So what we've seen in those four verses is a very basic summary of the Old Testament high priest, of the Levitical priesthood. It's a very detailed system that's designed to deal with sins committed under the Old Covenant. So now we look at Jesus. Did he bypass these requirements? Did he say, ah, these weren't that big of a deal? It's too detailed, too laborious, too involved, too tedious, going to pass on to the next thing? What did Jesus do? How did he interact with this? He didn't disregard them. He actually met them perfectly in order to do what? Establish a new covenant. Not only did he meet them, he also exceeded them. He went high above them, superior to them. Everything in the old covenant, everything about the old covenant was meant ultimately to point to Christ and what he would do. So we've seen the high priest generally. Now let's narrow down to the specific the specific, which is Christ, the high priest. We're going to see everything that we just saw in the first four verses, but we're going to see them back in reverse order. You'll see that on your papers. We're going to see, we saw the job description, we saw the job purpose, we saw the qualifications. Now we're going to back out and see them in reverse order. So what about the job qualifications in relation to Christ, verses 5 through 8? Does Jesus meet the qualifications? Christ was divinely appointed. We'll see that first. He was truly divinely appointed, verses 5 through 6. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6, Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So how does Christ meet these qualifications? This particular qualification, how does he meet it? Notice first, did Christ promote himself to it? It says he did not promote himself to it. He did not glorify himself to it so as to become a high priest. The way of the world is self-promotion. 
If you want to get ahead in any area of life, what does the world do? You have to promote yourself, promote your skills. You have to be ugly to your peers and, and be phony to your, to your superiors. You have to be rude to a group and you have to suck up to another group. This is what the world does. But Jesus did not glorify himself to this position. If he did, it would be going against everything that he had taught the disciples. What did Christ teach? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Matthew 23. Christ demonstrated this. He came as a baby. He was born in a feeding trough. Which, by the way, this Christmas season, I want to give the innkeeper a year off, okay? Everyone makes fun of the innkeeper every single year and talks about how terrible a person he was. Let's give him a break this year, okay? The inn was full. He was baptized by a man who wore camel's hair. This is what Christ did. He had no place to lay his head. He put up with 12 prideful disciples who kept arguing about who was the greatest among them. He entered his kingly entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. He submitted to the arrest of Roman soldiers. He submitted to Roman execution on a cross. He did all this so he could secure our redemption, taking the humble road, taking a position that was lower than anyone else had ever taken. How else does he meet this qualification of being divinely appointed? Let's see that the Godhead sovereignly predetermined that Christ would be the eternal high priest. The Godhead determined it in eternity past that Christ would be the eternal high priest. If you notice in this passage, there's two different Old Testament texts that prove this point. You are my son, today I have begotten you. What psalm is that from? Psalm 2. I saw someone, you whispered that, yes. Psalm 2. There's a little bit of a problem, at least at first. What's Psalm 2 about? What is Psalm 2 about? Think about it in your heads. What's it about? It's about Christ being established not as the priest in that text, but as what? As king. It's about Jesus being installed as king. Then he turns to Psalm 110 in the same context here. What's Psalm 110 about? Is it directly about the priesthood in that passage? It's about the king. It's about him being installed as king. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. His kingship, his session, his, his sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's going on with these two references about Christ being our king? point is that Jesus is our king priest. And as we saw at the beginning of Hebrews, he's also a prophet. He's the prophet, priest, and the king. So what did we say earlier about King Uzziah? He was struck down for trying to play the role of a priest. So how is this possible for Jesus now? There's a man mentioned in this book, a verse we just read, by the name Melchizedek. He's a man that you'll probably overlook when you read the book of Genesis. But he sets the precedent for someone who could be both king and a priest at the same time. Is Christ a priest according to the order of Aaron, according to the order of the Levites? How has his priesthood been established? Melchizedek, someone different. Christ is a priest forever, not according to Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek, both king and priest. More on him later. We're going to talk about him a lot later. But the point for right now is that the priesthood of Christ is a crucial part of Old Testament prophecy. It was embedded in God's plan of redemption for Christ to be the high priest. It wasn't something that was new in history, but something that had been promised throughout Old Testament prophecy. 
So he meets the second qualification on our list. What about the first qualification that we dealt with? <clears throat> Dealing gently with sinful people, verses 7 through 8. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. <clears throat> Can you think of times when Jesus prayed like this at the top of your head? Loud crying and tears. Can you think of examples of when Jesus prayed, period? Think of the Lord's Prayer. He taught the disciples to pray. Think of the high priestly prayer in John 17 where he agonized over the disciples and prayed for them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, exactly. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Not as I will, but as you will. Loud crying and tears. Sweat great drops of blood. And ultimately on Calvary, what was the cry of dereliction? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God hear Christ? Did God the Father hear God the Son, his prayers? Was he spared from the cross? He wasn't spared from the cross. So was he truly spared from death, as the text says? He was raised on the third day. He conquered death for us all. God did hear his prayer. He was saved from death. And notice also it says he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Learned obedience. Think about that phrase. Think about Christ. Then think about the phrase learned. Or the word learned. Is that possible for Christ to learn? Is it possible for Christ to learn anything? Did the Son of God really have anything to learn that he did not already know? Did he have to learn things like we do by trial and error? Like, oh, that was a mistake. I better not never do that again. Did he have to learn through disobedience punishment like our children do and like we do? Like we make a mistake, we do something stupid, and then we have to get punished for it? Is that how Christ learned? Bad decision and then consequence, is that how Christ learned and developed? There was never a time when Christ was not obedient. He was always obedient. You don't turn these references. I'll just read them to you. Isaiah 50. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. Isaiah 53. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He knew no sin. Verse we read last week. Hebrews 4.15. He was tempted, yet without sin. Hebrews 10 says, I have come to do your will, O God. How far did Christ's obedience go? What does Philippians 2 have to say about it? How far did it go? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if he didn't learn it by trial and error, if he didn't learn it because he just had some more things to learn, how does, how, what does it mean? How did he learn obedience. What does this phrase mean? Whenever you're in education, you're in school, you see the difference between learning by instruction and you have the learning by experience. You've seen these both these things, right, in your own experience, right? This means that Jesus experienced all the implications of perfect obedience to God the Father in space, time, history. 
during his days on the earth. That's what it means. He experienced all the implications of obedience. He came down in time, space, and history and experienced what we experience. That's what it means. He's the son of God. So that's why this phrase, even though he was the son, or better, even though he was the son of God, even though that was his status, even though he enjoyed glory with God the Father from eternity past, even though that was his privilege, even though that was his status, he still did that for us. There's at least two lessons that we can take away from Christ's example in these verses. If Christ suffered this way, do you think it's unreasonable for him to ask us to suffer, at least for a little while, in order for us to carry out his purposes on this earth? What happens as soon as we get in any kind of suffering, whether it's big or small? We ask God out right away, don't we? But do you think it's unreasonable for God to ask us to suffer, to carry out the gospel, to carry out the preaching of the gospel, to make disciples? Second lesson we can learn from these is that one day we are going to be able to talk about, and get this, we're going to be able to talk about one day when we're in heaven, when we're with Christ, we're going to be able to reflect back on our days in the flesh. Our days in the flesh. Look at that phrase back in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, really short phrase. Packed in that short phrase is 33 years of suffering. When we get to heaven, we're going to be able to look back on our lives and say, in the days of our flesh, and to talk about the suffering that we went through. And what were we going to see? We're going to say, it was too unbearable. I wish I would not have gone through all that for Christ. We're going to look back and say what? It was brief. Blink of an eye. It was gone. It's like a vapor. There's a hymn that we sing at this church sometimes. It says, why do I mourn and toil within when it's mine to hope in God? Why do we do this? Why do we get to the point where we're in so much despair that we think there's no more help as if God's no longer there. This life is brief and God has us in his hands and we can turn back to him because of what Christ has accomplished. And because of what Christ accomplished, he is in heaven constantly praying for us forever as we go through this life and as we suffer through this life. So because Christ met these job qualifications perfectly, he's able to do the purpose now. Backing back out, letter B, the job purpose in verse 9. He fulfills the purpose. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Does Jesus being made perfect mean that somehow he was imperfect beforehand? Morally or in any other way? Was he imperfect? Did he need improvement? Did Christ? It's not what it means. He was already morally perfect. He knew no sin. He was perfectly obedient. He was always those things. It's talking about the completion of his work. He did what he set out to do. He finished the work. It was done. He could say, it is finished. What's the result of this accomplished work? Eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. That word eternal is never applied to the Old Testament sacrifices, ever. Those had to be done again and again and again and again, over and over again, sacrificing all the time. But this word eternal is applied to the salvation that Christ offers to us. In biblical Christianity, what we learn from the scriptures about sin and about redemption is the only system of thought that you're going to come across in this world that fully acknowledges the depravity of man, fully acknowledges how much we've sinned, fully acknowledges how corrupt the world is, how corrupt our own hearts is, and at the same time provides an actual solution for that sin. 
It's the only system of thought that's going to do that. The more people you talk to, the more people say that they're going to mess this up and say, yeah, we're really not all that bad. Or maybe they'll say, yeah, we're pretty bad, but there's really no way of forgiveness. We can cross our fingers and hope that we'll be okay. But Christ offers eternal salvation. He's the source of it. Everyone else sweeps that under the rug. He fulfills the purpose. So naturally, he meets the description. It's a natural outcome that Christ is our high priest. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to talk again, like I said, a lot more about Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7 a few weeks from now. But we're not going to get to that section without a fight. We're going to get to some very difficult terrain at the end of chapter 5 and throughout chapter 6. Very difficult passages ahead of us. Look back at verse 11. Concerning him, who's the him point back to? Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have a lot to talk about. And it's hard to explain. It'd be hard to explain even without the complication, but here's the complication. Why is it hard to explain? Because you have become dull of hearing. You can't endure sound doctrine anymore. So he's going to launch into a very tough confrontation of our unwillingness to listen to the gospel. And that's what we'll see in the coming weeks. But as we wrap up this passage for tonight, know these few things. That God designed the whole system in mind. With, God designed this whole sacrificial system, pointing to Christ, designed it all with our sin, with our weakness in mind. Planning to give us redemption. Showing us that we have no other hope except Christ. Most people who come out on a Sunday night already know Christ. Can't always make that assumption completely, but many who come out, they do want to hear more about Christ. You probably came because you wanted to look, not because you wanted to hear me, because you wanted to see what the book of Hebrews says. So if you are that person, you already know Christ. And here's the encouragement for you this week, is remember that he is your high priest. Remember that he is, as we've already talked about, your personal possession, and that he is with you this week, and that he's praying for you. Christ Jesus is praying for you this week. As you launch into your work tomorrow morning, he's praying for you. When you stop praying, he is still praying. He's still interceding to the Father for you. If you don't have Christ, what should you do? If Christ is not your high priest, what should you do? Do you have to go an elaborate system of sacrificing, elaborate system of all kinds of laws, all kinds of different stipulations? Do you have to go back to that to get Christ? What do you have to do to get Christ as your high priest? There's only one thing, if we can even say we do it, there's only one response that we have been offered, and that is what? Faith. It's the only way into the new covenant, is faith in Christ, completely relying on what he has done in the cross as our high priest. And that's the call for us this week. Let's go to him in a time of prayer. Father, we do thank you for letting us come freely to you, we fully admit our weaknesses. We fully admit our sin. We fully admit that we are easily led astray. We fully admit our impatience. We fully admit that we are people in constant need of your grace. We do pray tonight that you would help us. Help us tomorrow morning as we wake up. Help us tonight. If any of us are discouraged about things, Lord, I pray that we would take those to you. I pray that we would deal with them, not sweep them under the rug, but, Lord, that we would bring them to the cross and see that we do have a great high priest who's interceding for us, who loves us, who's fulfilled the law, who is fully qualified to be our high priest and is our eternal high priest. We do love him. We do praise all in his name. Amen.